Chapter Twenty Nine of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine, Preliminaries to the Union. The Scottish Parliament was not dissolved at William's death, nor did it meet at the time when legally it ought to have met. Anne, in a message, expressed hopes that it would assent to union and promised to concur in any reasonable scheme for compensating the losers by the Darien scheme. When Parliament met, Queensberry, being commissioner, soon found it necessary, June thirtieth, 1702, to adjourn. New officers of state were then appointed, and there was a futile meeting between English and Scottish commissioners, chosen by the Queen to consider the Union. Then came a general election, 1703, which gave birth to the last Scottish Parliament. The commissioner, Queensberry, and the other officers of state, the court party, were of course for union. Among them was prominent that wavering Earl of Mar who was so active in promoting the Union, and later precipitated the Jacobite Rising of 1715. There were in Parliament the party of courtiers, friends of England and Union, the party of cavaliers, that is, Jacobites, and the country party, led by the Duke of Hamilton, who was in touch with the Jacobites, but was quite untrustworthy, and much suspected of desiring the crown of Scotland for himself. Queensbury cozened the Cavaliers, by promises of tolerating their Episcopalian religion, into voting a bill recognizing Anne, and then broke his promise. The bill for tolerating worship as practiced by the Episcopalians was dropped, for the Commissioner of the General Assembly of the Kirk declared that such toleration was the establishment of iniquity by law. Queensbury's one aim was to get supply voted, for war with France had begun but the country and the cavalier parties refused supply till an act of security for religion, liberty, law, and trade should be passed. The majority decided that, on the death of Anne, the estates should name as King of Scotland a Protestant representative of the House of Stuart, who should not be the successor to the English crown, save under conditions guaranteeing Scotland as a sovereign state, with frequent parliaments, and security for Scottish navigation, colonies, trade, and religion, the act of security. It was also decided that landholders and the boroughs should drill and arm their tenants and dependents, if Protestant. Queensbury refused to pass this act of security. Supply, on the other side, was denied, and after a stormy scene Queensbury prorogued Parliament, September sixteenth, 1703. In the excitement, Athol had deserted the court party and voted with the majority. He had a great highland following, he might throw it on the Jacobite side, and the infamous intriguer, Simon Fraser, the Lord Lovett of 1745, came over from France, and betrayed to Queensbury a real or a feigned intrigue of Athol with France, and with the ministers of James the Eighth, called the Pretender. Athol was the enemy of Fraser, a canting, astute, and unscrupulous ruffian. Queensbury conceived that, in a letter given to him by Lovett, he had irrefutable evidence against Athol as a conspirator, and he allowed Lovett to return to France, where he was promptly imprisoned as a traitor. Athol convinced Anne of his own innocence, and Queensbury fell under ridicule and suspicion, lost his office of commissioner, and was superseded by Tweedale. In England the whole complex affair of Lovett's revelations was known as the Scottish Plot, Hamilton was involved, or feared he might be involved, and therefore favoured the new proposals of the courtiers and English party 
for placing limits on the prerogative of Anne's successor, whoever he might be. In the estates, July 1704, after months passed in constitutional chicanery, the last year's act of security was passed and touched with the scepter, and the House voted supply for six months. But owing to a fierce dispute on private business, namely, the raising of the question, who were the persons accused in England of being engaged in the Scottish plot, no hint of listening to proposals for union was uttered. Who could propose, as commissioners to arrange union, men who were involved, or in England had been accused of being involved, in the plot? Scotland had not yet consented that whoever succeeded Anne in England should also succeed in Scotland. They retained a means of putting pressure on England, the threat of having a separate king. They had made and were making military preparations, drill once a month, and England took up the gauntlet. The menacing attitude of Scotland was debated on with much heat in the English upper house, November 29th, and a bill passed by the Commons declared the retaliatory measures which England was ready to adopt. It was at once proved that England could put a much harder pinch on Scotland than Scotland could inflict on England. Scottish drovers were no longer to sell cattle south of the border. Scottish ships trading with France were to be seized. Scottish coals and linen were to be excluded, and regiments of regular troops were to be sent to the border if Scotland did not accept the Hanoverian secession before Christmas 1705. If it came to war, Scotland could expect no help from her ancient ally, France, unless she raised the standard of King James. As he was a Catholic, the Kirk would prohibit this measure, so it was perfectly clear to every plain man that Scotland must accept the Union, and make the best bargain she could. In spring 1705 the new Duke of Argyle, Red John of the Battles, a man of the sword and an accomplished orator, was made commissioner, and of course favoured the Union, as did Queensbury and the other officers of state. Friction between the two countries arose in spring, when an Edinburgh jury convicted, and the mob insisted on the execution of, an English Captain Green, whose ship, the Worcester, had been seized in the fourth by Roderick Mackenzie, secretary of the Scottish East India Company. Green was supposed to have captured and destroyed a ship of the company's, the speedy return, which never did return. It was not proved that this ship had been Green's victim, but that he had committed acts of piracy is certain. The hanging of Green increased the animosity of the sister kingdoms. When Parliament met, June 28, 1705, it was a Parliament of groups. Tweedale and others, turned out of office in favour of Argyle's government, formed the flying squadron, Squadron Volante, voting in whatever way would most annoy the government. Argyle opened by proposing, as did the Queen's message, the instant discussion of the Union, July 3rd. The House preferred to deliberate on anything else, and the leader of the Jacobites, or Cavaliers, Lockhart of Carnwath, a very able, sardonic man, saw that this was, for Jacobite ends, a tactical error. The more time was expended, the more chance had Queensbury to win votes for the Union. Fletcher of Saltoon, an independent and eloquent patriot and republican, wasted time by impossible proposals. Hamilton brought forward, and by only two votes lost, a proposal which England would never have dreamed of accepting. Canny Jacobites, however, abstained from voting, and thence Lockhart dates the ruin of his country. Supply, at all events, was granted, and on that Argyle adjourned. The Queen was to select commissioners of both countries to negotiate the Treaty of Union, 
among the commissioners Lockhart was the only cavalier, and he was merely to watch the case in the Jacobite interest. The meeting of the two sets of commissioners began at Whitehall on April 16th. It was arranged that all proposals, modifications, and results should pass in writing, and secrecy was to be complete. The Scots desired union with home rule, with a separate parliament. The English would negotiate only on the lines that the union was to be complete, incorporating with one parliament for both peoples. By April 25, 1706, the Scots commissioners saw that, on this point, they must acquiesce. The defeat of the French at Romilly's, May 23, proved that, even if they could have leaned on the French, France was a broken reed. International reciprocity in trade, complete freedom of trade at home and abroad, they did obtain. As England, thanks to William III, with his incessant continental wars, already had a great national debt, of which Scotland owed nothing, and as taxation in England was high, while Scottish taxes under the Union would rise to the same level, and to compensate for the Darien losses, the English granted a pecuniary equivalent, May 10th. They also did not raise the Scottish taxes on windows, lights, coal, malt, and salt to the English level, that of war taxation. The equivalent was to purchase the Scottish shares in the East India Company, with interest at 5% up to May 1, 1707. That grievance of the shareholders was thus healed. What public debt Scotland owed was to be paid, the equivalent was about £400,000, and any part of the money unspent was to be given to improve fisheries and manufactures. The number of Scottish members of the British Parliament was fixed at forty-five. On this point the Scots felt that they were hardly used. The number of their elected representatives of peers in the Lords was sixteen. Scotland retained her courts of law. The feudal jurisdictions which gave to Argyll and others almost princely powers were retained, and Scottish procedures and trials continued to vary much from the English model. Appeals from the Court of Session had previously been brought before the Parliament of Scotland. Henceforth they were to be heard by the judges, Scots and English, in the British House of Lords. On July 23, 1706, the treaty was completed. On October 3rd the Scottish Parliament met to debate on it, with Queensbury as commissioner. Harley, the English minister, sent down the author of Robinson Crusoe to watch, spy, argue, persuade, and secretly report, and Defoe's letters contain the history of the session. The parties in Parliament were thus variously disposed. The Cavaliers, including Hamilton, had been approached by Louis the Fourteenth and King James the Pretender, but had not committed themselves. Queensbury always knew every risky step taken by Hamilton, who began to take several, but in each case received a friendly warning which he dared not disregard. At the opposite pole, the Cameronians and other extreme Presbyterians loathed the Union, and at last, November-December, a scheme for the Cameronians and the clans of Angus and Perthshire to meet in arms in Edinburgh and clear out the Parliament caused much alarm. But Hamilton, before the arrangement came to a head, was terrorized, and the intentions of the Cameronians, as far as their records prove, had never been officially ratified by their leaders. There was plenty of popular rioting during the session, but Argyll rode into Edinburgh at the head of the horse-guards, and Lavin held all the gates with drafts from the garrison of the castle. The commissioners of the General Assembly made protests on various points, but were pacified after the security of the Kirk had been guaranteed. 
Finally, Hamilton prepared a parliamentary mine, which would have blown the Treaty of Union sky-high, but on the night when he should have appeared in the house and set the match to his petard, he had toothache. This was the third occasion on which he had deserted the cavaliers. The opposition fell to pieces. The squadron volante and the majority of the peers supported the bill, which passed. On January 16, 1707, the Treaty of Union was touched with the scepter, and there is the end of an old sang, said Seafeld. In May 1707 a solemn service was held at St. Paul's to commemorate the Union. There was much friction in the first year of the Union over excise men and tax collectors. Smuggling began to be a recognized profession. Meanwhile, since 1707, a Colonel Hook had been acting in Scotland, nominally in Jacobite, really rather in French interests. Hook's intrigues were in part betrayed by Defoe's agent, Kerr of Kersland, an amusing impudent knave, and were thwarted by jealousies of Argyle and Hamilton. By deceptive promises, for he was himself deceived into expecting the aid of the Ulster Protestants, Hook induced Louis the Fourteenth to send five men of war, twenty-one frigates, and only two transports, to land James in Scotland, March 1708. The equinoctial gales and the severe illness of James, who insisted on sailing, delayed the start. The men on the outlook for the fleet were intoxicated, and Forbin, the French commander, observing English ships of war coming towards the Firth of Forth, fled, refusing James's urgent entreaties to be landed anywhere on the coast, March 24th. It was believed that, had he landed only with a valet, the discontented country would have risen for their native king. In Parliament, 1710 to 1711, the Cavalier Scottish members, by Tory support, secured the release from prison of a Reverend Mr. Greenshields, an Episcopalian who prayed for Queen Anne, indeed, but had used the liturgy. The preachers were also galled by the imposition on them of an abjuration oath, compelling them to pray for prelatical Queen Anne. Lay patronage of livings was also restored, 1712, after many vicissitudes, and this thorn rankled in the kirk, causing ever-widening strife for more than a century. The imposition of a malt tax produced so much discontent that even Argyle, with all the Scottish members of Parliament, was eager for the repeal of the Act of Union, and proposed it in the House of Peers, where it was defeated by a small majority. In 1712, when about to start on a mission to France, Hamilton was slain in a duel by Lord Mohun. According to a statement of Lockhart's, cavaliers were to look for the best from Hamilton's mission. It is fairly clear that he was to bring over James in disguise to England, as in Thackeray's novel, Esmond. But the sword of Mohun broke the Jacobite plans. Other hopes expired when Bolingbroke and Harley quarrelled, and Queen Anne died, August 1, 1714. The best cause in Europe was lost, cried Bishop Atterbury, for want of spirit. He would have proclaimed James as king, but no man supported him, and the elector of Hanover, George I, peacefully accepted the throne. End of chapter 29. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.